Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Krishnan Chakravarthy about many of the ways that COVID has, in some places, accelerated technological advancement as we've sought to not only combat the virus, but also just address different challenges faced by the healthcare ecosystem at large. We also talk about how he has seen pain practices evolve as they've tried to adjust to continue to provide uh, pain treatments to patients during COVID and how uh, clinicians are dealing with that all over the place. So... As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined by returning guest, Dr. Krishnan Chakravarthy. Dr. Chakravarthy has joined us, it's hard to believe, almost 22 episodes ago now. He's anesthesia and pain boarded. He's got a PhD in immunology. He's running something called the Chakravarthy Lab out of UCSD. Lots of uh, work in nanomedicine, nanotech, and other advanced feats of microengineering. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Chakravarthy today. Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's always a fun uh, conversation with you. I mean, I feel like you're one of my favorite podcast people every time, and uh, we discover something different and talk about an important topic. So really glad to be here today. Well, thank you. It's always a lot of fun. So I, I want to start off as I was preparing for this interview, I was just Googling around and I happened to run across your name associated with this thing called the Lifeboat Foundation. And as I was cruising around on this website, it was very, it was very interesting. If anybody wants to check it out, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, essentially what this Lifeboat Foundation does for our listeners in their About Us section is essentially getting smart people together to think about systemic risks to humankind, like pandemics and asteroids and nuclear holocaust and things like that. So I'm curious, uh, describe your uh, you know experience with the Lifeboat Foundation. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, with all things practical, to be honest, I haven't thought about it since you bring it up. So, you know, I, I got, um, sometimes I feel a lot of these interesting uh, things that your name gets connected to, certainly the good and bad of it, but um, let's set aside what the validity or lack thereof of kind of where the thought process behind a foundation like that. I think um, one thing that's come from our current role in society and how we're dealing with the pandemic is nothing can be taken for granted. It's pretty amazing how, um, you know, just and just prior to this kind of recording of this conversation, the podcast, we were talking really heavily about how fast technology has changed um, the speed at which we are thinking about bigger problems, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's making uh, human beings multi-planetary and or dealing with a uh, one of the largest pandemics in the last hundred years in our human population. So, um, you know, I, I think the concept is nice to be tied to. How much is it actually going to compare into a specific uh, actionable things? I, I'm not certain of, but um, nonetheless, it's always good to see your name getting flashed in Google for different things, I guess. Understood. Um, one of the things we were also discussing before the call, you, you described uh, an article in the journal, the Wall Street Journal uh, recently about uh, dr new drug delivery system, specifically uh, vaccine delivery for COVID uh, using micro needle technology to be able to circumvent the usual poke in the arm that people like me detest. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. 
yeah, this is an uh, I, this is a really I think an amazing uh, conversation for lots of reasons. So you know, look at um, where we are today with COVID is, and you hear a lot nationally about this topic that your every time that a virus is around in a demographic or population, it continues to mutate. And as viruses mutate, their natural proclivity is to mutate things that our immune system wants to target. Because the idea is for viruses, you are replicating and passing on that genome and reproducing more viral copies to infect other people. And so partially that becomes a challenge in how do you, one, one approach is we talk a lot about herd immunity, which is if more people get infected, they naturally build a tolerance and immune response to these viral strains and you get more antibodies that essentially target different receptors on these viruses and, and a larger and larger population curb that kind of spread. And what happens with that is what may be a pandemic strain becomes what we define as endemic, which means kind of like flu every year even though you have a little bit of a variation in the strain, you get a flu vaccine that helps you protect against that. Now, the, the challenge for vaccine delivery today, one is you have a lot of companies producing different vaccines, whether it's Johnson & Johnson's um, approach or, and or the Pfizer, Bio, Pfizer BioNTech and or um, Moderna, everybody's coming up with production of as many doses as possible. But the, the crazy part in that is it's not just about the production end, it's how do you actually get this into patients? And you, know, you see a lot of the mass campaigns that are going on. And today we are still trying to, no matter what aisle in the political landscape you sit on, the bottom line is infrastructure development, whether it's in large mass campaign strategies of vaccinating people to um, universities stepping in, university physicians stepping in to uh, help put in vaccines into patients. The bottom line is ease of access is determining a race that we're having with this virus. Because what you expect is at some point, the more people that are infected, the more likelihood the virus will mutate. And in the off chance, it mutates a surface receptor that's important in an antibody response. All of a sudden, you've got yourself a second surge or third surge, or in this case, a fourth surge of this type of um, COVID-19 uh, virus. So how quickly you can distribute vaccines is as much a part of this solution as how quickly you can make the vaccine. So one of the things that I think is interesting is how do you get the vaccine today? It's an injectable. So you have two separate injections over three weeks with a booster. And that's the data that is the most uh, relevant from the clinical trials that these companies have done. So to get that to happen pretty consistently in a coordinated effort, it's challenging. I mean, you have to be able to set that up. You have to coordinate. You have to have patient compliance. And you see a lot of different data now in the United Kingdom. They're talking about a single dose being 70 to 75% or they're quoting some numbers on the efficacy. So one of the thoughts that has really... Uh, become much more at the forefront is, could we develop ways that you can almost have a patch technique where you can deliver vaccines into patients without actually doing anything injectable? Something that's almost like a Band-Aid that you put on your skin and off you go. 
Um, in the past, the challenge with that is that your skin is a very strong, uh, you know, great barrier for protecting you against infection, but it's just as effective in a barrier to prevent things from going in. So we were actually pretty excited that we recently looked at that model uh, with a micro needle technology. So micro needles are actually small needles up smaller than the diameter of a human hair. And we've actually lithographically printed them on um, almost something as small as a Band-Aid to penetrate the skin painlessly. But once you've crossed that bigger barrier or more protective barrier, things diffuse a lot faster. So what we're, in fact, that Wall Street Journal today was talking, that article was really talking about how this could be how in maybe a two to three year time frame, you're going to just get a patch. You come in, put a patch painlessly, you get your vaccine delivered, and you just go home. And I mean, I think to imagine how impressive that could be in how something as seasonal as vaccine delivery being changed head on its head in terms of the how it gets delivered is really, I mean, pretty innovative, I think. Yeah, I mean, vaccine deliver. I mean, I'm, I, I would imagine that the way that vaccines have been delivered has been the same for as long as they have been delivered. <laughs> and so innovating on something like the delivery system itself, I think is pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, it's again, a testament to somebody who was making the comment, in what other time in human history, have we been able to accelerate vaccine development within a year of identifying a pandemic? And I think one of the incredible parts about this is that even the vaccines today that Pfizer and uh, Moderna use have nanomaterials in them. And so the whole lipid solubility or uh, some of the actual uh, compounds are nanomaterials based. So, you know, it, it's, it, to me, it's an evolution in technology that has just been given a super surcharge and acceleration into the marketplace. So I think there's some amazing things around the corner, but at the same time, we're learning things about you know, patient responses, where are they allergic to certain things and, you know, traditional vaccines to newer vaccines. But I think overall, um, as more and more people are getting, it's, it's a testament to the safety and how impressive science has come and how far it has. You said lithographically printed. What does that mean to make these little micro needles? 3D printing. So really, we actually template what these uh, needles look like, and we print them on a 3D printer and you actually, the materials that the needles are made of, you can control their degradation rates. So in fact, you can actually have something delivered instantaneously or have something delivered for months on end at the rate the actual material degrades biologically. So a lot of the, I mean, you're getting to the fine tuning of releasing as well as sensing what you're delivering. So you can imagine, I mean, it's fascinating. Drugs that you can control concentration as they're going across the skin, as well as uh, knowing the speed at which they're getting to the patient. Sounds like the the materials science is at least as relevant, if not more, than the actual medicine itself. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, that's where it, it's um, the concept of drug delivery has been around for a while. But I think right now, we're really seeing the uh, impact of it in in the practical aspect of the science. So, you know, for, if you think about what the vaccines are, when is the last time I think the Clinton era, people were talking about gene therapy being at the forefront of medicine. We are seeing the impact of that in some ways in this pandemic where 
you're applying that technology. But for gene therapy, the biggest limitation was how do you deliver this stuff? Because natural genes have are, are exogenous material. They get degraded really fast. The body sees them as something not unique. So, I mean, for a lot of folks that are in the science world, I mean, this is like, it's like amazing time to be in medicine, I would say. I always enjoy talking to you because I feel like all the most cutting edge and exciting things are the things that you're working on at any given time. It's so cool. Uh, and you mentioned, so I want to zoom in specifically on how is, uh, you know, in the context of a lot of the changes that we're seeing right now with COVID and everything, how is COVID and the response to COVID impacting uh, clinical pain care for patients and for physicians? And specifically, I know you mentioned um, Aspen, the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, is issuing guidelines about uh, COVID vaccines and how that plays into uh, treatment uh, for patients. Can you describe a little bit about the the thinking there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think um, one of the awesome parts about being um, working with a society like Aspen was that I, I think we really, um, we went through phases in our uh, approach to educating pain physicians globally about where we were in the pandemic last year to this year and the challenges in each of those phases going forward. So at first, really, we the pain field has, um, to some extent, really changed to being much more, we are trying to discover our role within the interventional paradigm. Um, we are getting more and more products that are coming into the space that require us to act more surgically, uh, access to training appropriately for these products so that we can apply them into the clinical setting. So with the advent of the evolution that is happening in the pain field that is rapid, I mean, the amount of new products, literally, um, if you go on social media within three to six months, you see another new product popping up. The How do you train people effectively, especially when you're in a academic center or in a private practice center to do these things safely when the education medium has drastically changed, right? So one part is understanding the pandemic which we did a lot of the educational content coming up. The second part was really, once you understood it, how did you deliver care in that model? So we went through that period of testing, understanding contact tracing, understanding the, uh, the benefits of uh, personal PPEs and all the staff. And I think as a field, we've done a really good job. And I think whether it's in private practices or large academic centers, Everybody's adopted a strategic plan for the most part in terms of their state mandated guidelines, as well as individual uh, outpatient centers on how to deliver care. Now, the, the topic that ultimately where we're faced with now in the climate of vaccinations is, should we or not hold specific interventional therapies that have immunosuppressants like steroids uh, within the context of somebody getting a vaccine? And when we looked at that data, we just are uh, that just got accepted in, in a um, peer-reviewed journal. Um, what we are finding is that there isn't any precedent for holding these interventional therapies in the context of would you put a patient at higher risk for less vaccine efficacy? And I, I think where that that debate, whether you know you see some of the other guidelines that may or may societies that may suggest waiting two weeks versus not. I think we obviously each individual patient has to be addressed individually by their clinician, but we right now would recommend continuing the current course. We don't think necessarily there's enough data to warrant changing our current treatment paradigm. 
Um, so that that's been kind of our guideline. And as we go forward, I think, you know, obviously it's a very fluid situation. We may change that, um, but we're doing our best to kind of educate the group on what that looks like. And I know another thing that you mentioned is as far as access to testing, uh, you mentioned out there in California, you now have COVID tests and vending machines, which I think is pretty remarkable. Can you just describe what's going We're out here in Philly? We don't have such things. So tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that as one of the, the two parts of this, and I think the testing uh, theory of trying to get as many people tested is really important because one, it helps us from a population epidemiological perspective, trying to track how effective vaccines are doing and kind of curbing that, um, are we really flattening the curve? Are we reaching a plateau? Are we worried that there's gonna be newer strains? So, you know, just yesterday I was walking off campus with my fellow and he's like, hey, you know, we have to implement at least within our center at UCSD, we do once a week testing for all staff. They want to make sure that we, if there's any issues, we're obviously even post-vaccination to make sure that everybody's negative for COVID. But part of that is once a week, you need easy accessibility. So now, now what they're suggesting is on campus, you can actually get some of these rapid COVID tests on a vending machine. And it's pretty amazing that they've set up something like that. It's really a very novel way of access. And But even beyond that, at multiple centers within the campus, you could go there get a 15 minute rapid test and kind of rule out your rule out active COVID. So I, I think it's a, it's interesting. I don't know whether that model is going to apply to other parts of the country. I know certainly um, you see a very different situation in Texas now where, you know, they're suggesting no masks or any of that parts of it. So I, I still firmly believe testing is going to be important. Not maybe not simply from a, treatment perspective in terms of what I would do with a positive or negative test for an asymptomatic person, but at least to be able to do continue doing contact tracing and looking at case loads and case volumes. I'm curious, you know, there's a lot of data flying around as it relates to the progression of the virus and whether or not it's, you know, how it's behaving in terms of public health and trends and things. As you look at sort of where we're at right now, and obviously this is changing daily, it's, I think today's March 4th or 5th, and by the time this show airs, we may be in a different spot altogether, but is there any uh, data points specifically that you sort of hone in on, whether it's like, you know, ICU capacity or, you know, the trend there's, you can find a chart to suit your perspective, no matter how you kind of look at how things are progressing. So is there any specific as it relates to public health and, and progress towards uh, resuming, I mean, wh whatever normal is going to look like post COVID, what, what are you paying attention to? Yeah. So, um, there is a really nice website that um, looks at the metrics on predicting mortality rates based on, I think uh, it's either at University of Washington or um, one of the specific sites that, and, and the whole idea is at the early part of the pandemic, it's really interesting. What you would observe is after every major holiday event, you would see a spike in the number of cases as well as higher number of uh, mortalities, right? And so to me, at the end of the day, this again comes back to a very important philosophical debate about, and, and maybe it's a more practical one, which is how do you take responsibility for individual actions that have a clear impact on um, you know, downstream effects on larger population of people? So why that I, I get back to that is, um, 
if I'm looking at it purely from an epidemiological perspective, I talk about caseload. I talk about number of new cases. I talk about mortality rates. I talk about, I mean, uh, even within UCSD, our COVID tracker literally looks at number of patients with COVID, how many ICU beds are available, and how does that decision for usage and capacity impact how do we triage uh, elective versus urgent cases? So where I get back to that is, is there a possibility for normalcy in the next month? Probably not. I mean, I think we're probably looking at another six months to year and there's some suggestion again on the scientific community that we may be wearing masks for some time. Um, and I, I think this idea, are we getting to the point of herd immunity? Uh, maybe possible. But unless we really test and get over 70% of our population either vaccinated and or suggestive of some antibody response, we're really not there. So I, I think the challenge is that the pressures of whether you look at it in a small microcosm of I need to keep my practice open to continue feeding and supporting the things that I, I need to continue having in my life and my family versus hey, this is still an ongoing public health issue. We haven't quite solved it yet. Um, and the more we loosen that um, set of strict guidelines that are in place, that's going to reflect its pure mathematics. I mean, in the sense that viruses don't discriminate. They continue to replicate. They keep doing it with a profound efficiency. Um, so the things that you put in place essentially curb that kind of numbers going up. Take a minute and describe the sort of the clinical settings that you interact in at UCSD and how has uh, your sort of the, the treatment sort of philosophy and the actual like operations and mechanics of caring for patients as COVID has progressed, how has that evolved and what does it look like right now for you? Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you, it is very challenging. And I, I think what strikes me is, and I, I can't imagine the number of patients uh, you know, I, you know, it's a fascinating thing. A lot of people think pain is an elective thing that we do. And one of the things you realize through this process in this pandemic is how much that these interventions that we take for granted that patients receive every three months, it's life-changing for them. So, you know, if you're, if you can't even get out of bed or if you're non-functional because you don't have the ability to get into an outpatient center to get these injections that are deemed elective, then it becomes really difficult for patients. So what I've realized in you know, the protocol we have is today you still need a COVID test 72 hours before you're deemed ready to go for that intervention or and uh, whether it's an epidural to any of the more um, advanced interventional procedures. But the bottom line is when you're talking about people traveling to get these tests done, the challenges with can you, when you have multiple procedures, can they put them in within that 10 day window? What happens to patients that get test COVID positive, have waited for an operative procedure for months and now are again delayed? So I think it's, it has been, I would say, not easy. I think there are a lot of patients that have really been challenged by the whole climate of it. I think we're doing better. Um, but again, as more people are getting vaccinated, things are starting to open up to the way that it was. But I think this, this, this process has really highlighted how impactful pain management is. And is it 
truly elective or not as kind of the real question that I think we're starting to ask. Yeah, it seems like someone who says a pain treatment is elective is someone who's not in pain. <laughs> How much variability do you perceive among your peers elsewhere in the country as far as the testing, the 72-hour window, like the procedure around exactly what you described? Is there a broad variability as far as the way those questions are answered or is there a lot of uniformity? I, I think there is a lot of broad variability. And, th and that's where the, the challenge comes in. Is it, can we be more prescriptive or is that an unfair assessment? Because let's be frank, I mean, at UCSD, when you have a large institution or, and you have the backing of all of these different services, it makes sense. But I'm sure there are people on this podcast that are in a small private practice. How much resources do they have? But I, I think the one thing that is a consistent theme is we have to, there are certain things that everybody can do. Wearing masks, proper screening at the door for temperature, things that, you know, look for things that are symptomatic. Those things can be done independent of a lot of investment resources. Do I think I would love to see testing be a part of every pain center? Absolutely. Is that an expectation that may require individual decisions on different folks that are able to do it or not do it? I, you know, I'm, I am sensitive to that, but, you know, we are where we're at. But, you know, I, the question, I always come back to if you say you had a positive case, now you're shut down for X number of weeks, then you're contact tracing within your own clinic. So there are some sensible things that we can all do that follows each of your state mandated guidelines. But at the end of the day, there are sensible things in PPE and testing that can be implemented that could be low cost that I think would make a lot of sense. Once vaccination happens more broadly, are those types of shutdowns and is, is that still going to be necessary or is that still currently necessary or do the vaccines change that equation? I think that, so, you know, I think the vaccines can change that equation depending on how quickly you can do broad scale vaccination. Because the whole, whole idea is that can we get to the point that you essentially vaccinated enough people in a population that no matter how fast a virus mutates, it, it doesn't have a chance to become a new viral strain. Now, that being said, the beauty of some of the technology with this vaccine, and you could probably hedge a bet that the NIH and all of the, the smart folks that are on the vaccine development side are already thinking about strains that have mutated and are developing booster shots that would be relevant to that. Now, the, the, that part of it is also an educational piece. You know, there was a lot of questions around vaccine efficacy. There are a lot of people who still don't believe that it's relevant, right? And very educated people who think that, why should I get a vaccine? Um, why not just get the actual infection and write it out? So we have to do our part in viewing it again as it may be you're the guy who's lucky enough not to have something significantly symptomatic, but we're not thinking about just you as an individual person. We're thinking about the larger global community. And there are people that get really sick from this. So uh, it's, uh, it is a tough debate because we really need large scale vaccination to really have it be effective. Yeah, there, there's no easy answers in these types of questions. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, the, the opioid situation and the way that in light of what's happening with COVID, the 
opioid epidemic has kind of taken a back seat, although it has not abated. It has just sort of diminished in the headlines. Um, there was a recent article we'll link to in the show notes. Um, it was, a, it was an, a press release actually from the CDC in December of 2020 that talked about some of these very startling statistics. 37 of 38 U.S. jurisdictions with available synthetic opioid data saw increases in overdose deaths. In 10 states out west, there was a cumulative 98% increase in reported synthetic opioid-involved deaths, etc. There's a lot of numbers here that all tell the same story that there's there's still a big problem and a lot of that i mean it's probably a multifactorial problem but what do you think when you see numbers like those yeah i mean i'm i'm not surprised you know um if you looked at prior to the covid pandemic you know one of the major topics on the national forum was the opioid epidemic in fact millions to billions of dollars was being invested in alternatives to opiates how do we curb abuse how do we start to half the major lawsuits against Purdue Pharma was really becoming front and center of the news section about how they, you know, understanding what fueled the opioid epidemic, how are we going to help deal with that? So to assume that that public health issue has suddenly disappeared seems to me doesn't really make logical sense. I mean, I think, in fact, the, the challenges patients are having in terms of access to care is only probably fueling this concept that um, we need to be much less maybe as prescriptive, but maybe really focusing on individual patients and not putting them in the context of large, broad scale guidelines necessarily. So one of the things I, and you see a lot of this, some of the key thought leaders talking about this, which is, you know, people that have been on maintenance doses for long, long periods of time. Is it fair to necessarily, um, ostracize or think about it in a negative light because they've been on that maintenance dose for a long time. And what is our approach to that? Um, versus folks that are clearly, there may be some pathology or psychosocial issue. There may be some addiction seeking behavior. Now, all of a sudden they're not getting any access. And that, that is clearly uh, translating into over misuse in ways that they are not able to necessarily be managed properly. So I, I think that this is a, a pressing issue. I think that it's just going to be something as a society, as a individual clinicians, we're probably going to have to work much harder than we might have probably in terms of addressing this, because it's now added the element of another probably six months to a year on, you know, within another pandemic, now becoming an endemic strain, how do we get deal with the ongoing public health issues. So I'm not really surprised by the numbers that the CDC put out. Are there any ways that the, uh, whether it's policy or just, um, you know, broadly accepted clinical best practice is evolving in light of COVID to try to address the opioid problem, knowing that there's so many moving parts? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that CDC task force that came together that put those original guidelines, I, I think one of the thing things that would be important to probably address is getting that back that task force back together and reevaluate within this pandemic how do we again if we give broad guidelines to health centers should we be helping patients that are under withdrawal and or seeking more immediate access to care without the you know as rigorous stipulations on okay I can't see you because for x y and z reasons um, so I, I think that that is an ongoing work, and I think it's a really wonderful point that 
maybe that's a call to action for across societies and for interventionists to start thinking about that. I know one of the things that you do is collaborate with industry to develop technologies and advance different uh, clinical approaches. And I'm curious, in your conversations with your industry uh, peers and partners, how has, uh, first of all, how has COVID impacted those businesses? And, and secondly, have you seen any ideas or opportunities or other interesting things sort of uh, start on the industry side of things that has been adopted by, by physicians? No, so that's a fantastic question. You know, I, I think um, one of the, the elements that we are getting challenged with, and I think in, from an industry perspective, is education. And where, where that comes into it is, you're seeing today in the pain space a tremendous evolution of what the definition of an interventional pain doctor had been. In the past, you know, you could say I, I did spinal cord stimulation was the advanced therapy. But the reality is that's not the case. You have everything that is spanning from, um, you know, percutaneous SI joint fusions to uh, some of the spinal stenosis work with mild or vertiflex, and you hear a lot of these different procedures and now still ongoing more procedures that are quote unquote, becoming more minimally invasive. The, the challenge is that we as a field have always looked at pain, tra pain training as a one-year fellowship. And the, the bridge in that educational piece is on-site cadaver training. I mean, literally that has been our go-to where uh, faculty would come, you'd educate folks over the weekend or, and then they would learn the technique and they would go apply it into their practice. So that has been completely revolutionized in the last year and year and a half. And to the point where a lot of that educational content is coming through some form of digital media, through digital content. But I, I think the challenge that comes ultimately though, is that in a, in a field that is very hands-on, there's only so much you can do in a virtual forum. So for industry today, the big questions are, how do I effectively train future generation physicians to use my product in a context of an ongoing pandemic? Should I incorporate testing in every time I bring faculty together? What are the requirements in the number of people in a training site before I can even actually implement a, a training program? So I, I think there, there are some guidelines that we're starting to see, you know, maintaining social distancing, six feet among people that are there, um, masks, um, you know, temperature screening, symptomatic screening. Is it rigorous enough that we can go back to what we had before when you could train 40 people in a single weekend? Probably not. Um, but I think that one thing that comes from this, though, is I think there is a definitive call to action among companies to start standardizing those training protocols. Because I do worry that if everybody's not applying that same set of criteria, that it's in the off chance that there isn't, you know, suddenly like a cluster that breaks out because a bunch of people came in together, then that's gonna reflect badly for the entire space. So that, that theme applies to now conferences. People are tired of hearing webinar content coming out to the point that they're like, Hey, I'm so antsy to get to a conference in live real time. When is the next one available? So I think we're still working out those mechanics. I, I just, I'm hoping that we do it in a standardized manner. And I think industry really partnering with societies to give those guidances are going to be really important. I was going to say, do you think something like an Aspen would be a, a place where that conversation would happen? 
Yeah, I mean, we're trying our, we're going to be setting up the first live meeting this summer. Um, and there's other smaller societies that are looking to do live training events earlier part of April, May. Now, is the recommendation that you should get vaccinated before traveling to these sites? Should we still continue to screen everybody that's there um, and really making sure that we're protecting the participants as well as folks that are teaching? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do we think six, all the same guidances that everybody's giving, should we adopt? Yes. I, I think the challenge, you know, is it going to come back to by the end of this year where everybody is totally back to baseline? I think that's going to be a little bit more challenging. I think we've got some work to do. You alluded to this in your prior remark, this idea of COVID fatigue, it's something that we're all experiencing in varying degrees. I'm curious, sort of like how you're walking through that yourself and how you're you're perceiving that among your peers and yeah. how's it going in that regard? Oh, I think I, you know, um, at least have, in San Diego, you can still get a little sunshine here in the Northeast. It's been a really a brutal winter. <laughs> so if you ask this to my wife with a five and three year old, she is beyond COVID fatigued at this point, you know, this is total life changing for a lot of people. Cause I mean, with kids and everything you're stuck with a lot of, you know, if they're not going back to school, it's like home education. And then the frustrations around that, you know, I, I come back to this. It's, um, it's a, the best analogy I give is if you were very, very, very disciplined at the beginning, you could fix, you could try to fix these situations a lot sooner, but then it's like the, uh, the guy that goes on a diet and then he wants to cheat and have a bunch of like dessert, you know, it's like, man, I, I really can't handle this anymore. So I would have said that at this point, we're going to have to just accept that this is a part of our life. Now, how that impacts the decisions that, you know, whether you're visiting family, loved ones, or, you know, holidays or weddings or whatever we're planning, the, the thing again goes back to, you know, where do we see ourselves as decisions we make as individuals versus things that we impact the broader community? I, I don't have a, I mean, that's where you eat, everyone individually decides that, but I, I, yeah, I agree. There is COVID fatigue significantly, but the worry I have is that's exactly where, you know, you keep pushing this along. And now there's some concerns that it's not completely like you're flattening the curve. They're plateauing. So are we, is a virus kind of getting ahead of us at some point? Any other, and, and I appreciate your time here, Dr. Chakravarthi. We'll wrap it up here in a minute. Uh, are there any other sort of thoughts, reflections, or words of wisdom for re either regarding some of the things we've, we've touched on that listeners might be interested in or else just for, doctors who are out there who are like slugging it out and feeling like they're really getting hit with this COVID fatigue and they're like feeling the strain and the burden of all of the extra effort and steps and decreased patient volume in spite of all that effort. And uh, how would you, what would you share with somebody like that to help them you know, soldier on? Agreed. I mean, I look how often historically a pandemic of this magnitude happens once every hundred years, right? last big one was in 1918. And the, the thing that you have to take is how much science has helped and curb. I mean, you th talk about what 1918, there was 50 to 70 million deaths globally. I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a six month effort. That was a, they defined it as a two year pandemic. And in fact, it was 1919 after the first wave of Spanish flu that that the mortality rates really climbed. So I think that, you know, when you put it into that context, I feel um, 
you know, it's interesting that um, you look at other species on this planet, they're much more communal. Like you look at animals have certain limitations to uh, almost a, a sense of their belonging in an environment. And so as we continue as, as human beings, as we continue to populate this planet and the impact that technology and things that we do to the environment, deforestation, things that were traditionally meant to be wildlife and we kind of expand into that, the idea of the natural viral strains that can become more pandemic is, is gonna be something we're gonna have to deal with. I, I think that the, as we, you know, resources get less and we overpopulate more, more novel strains that skip from animals to humans is just a byproduct. And that's what we're finding with this whole COVID story. But what the message in that is though, is I think that from, take that from a global view to something more practical, um, I think we should be really proud of how, how far we've come as a field and we'll work together and how we've disseminated information and looking at, um, I know it's really hard when you think about your monthly paycheck and all the sacrifices we have to make, but I, I think it's a, maybe a time for reflection. I mean, I, I think it's easier said than done, but um, you know, what was the, uh, from South India at the time when India was getting into its independence, um, a lot of people were asking Gandhi about where he drew his philosophical ideas. And it was after uh, a Russian philosopher by the name of Tolstoy. And he had this concept of this community where no individual uh, activity was viewed as any less or more valuable within that community. So whether you were the janitor and or the guy who was overseeing everybody doing their job, everybody was treated in the same way. So that concept today may be more telling than any other time in our history. Like how do we take ourselves beyond an individual perspective and what we're doing for the greater good? So um, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Absolutely. And just cultivating the idea of our shared humanity and a mutual respect for one another and appreciation for the, the role that each of us serve. And there's, you know, in a time of COVID when like we need the truck drivers and the people who stock the shelves at the grocery store, you know, I don't, everyone, you know, everyone has a role to play and there's a lot more, there's, there's a lot of essential contributions out there just beyond the ones that are obvious. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you're doing, Justin, is an amazing thing because I feel so few times people are at the front end of education, how much information gets filtered through every one of us and this stigma around science and data and why it's important, not important. And with the idea of COVID fatigue, that gets even more amplified because nobody really wants to hear things that they think is going to curtail their day-to-day -day life, right? And so from that perspective, I think all of the efforts that you guys are making, I think is so critical. I mean, I just, it gives everybody another opportunity to re-reflect and think about what am I doing in my everyday life? Well, Dr. Christian Shaktavarthi, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of APM Success. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful talking to you. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.